I've noticed just throughout life, but also observationally, is the fact that there's nothing like a great comeback. There's nothing like a great comeback. Tell your neighbor right now, there's nothing like a great comeback. You know, last Saturday, some of you may have been watching some college football. You may have seen what I think rates as the wildest, greatest comeback, or at least the top two or three in the history of of college football. Let me let me set the stage for you just quickly. The University of Michigan under first year head coach Jim Harbaugh, as I like to call him, the khakis, was playing their cross-state rival Michigan State and in this rebuilding year the University of Michigan was within just millimeters of winning this game in what would be an incredible momentum builder in a rebuilding year. They were 10 seconds away from victory, leading 23 to 21. Now, Michigan had a fourth down and two, and so they had to punt the ball away, and all they had to do was hang on. Now, if you keep in mind the snap and the punt and the hang time, all of that would have chewed up about five, maybe six seconds of those 10 seconds, and they just had to defend the return man for Michigan State for about four seconds, tackle him game over. But instead, here is what happened. Get it out. Oh, he has trouble with the snap, and the ball is free. It's picked up by Michigan State's Jalen Watts-Jackson, and he scores on the last play of the game. Unbelievable. I love home crowd radio announcers for college. That guy's all, and he scores! It's the end of the game. It's so cool that they let a kid in the middle of puberty call that game, I thought. Now, you don't even have to like college football, and certainly unless you bleed maize and blue, you could acknowledge that was an amazing comeback on the last play of the game. There is nothing like a great Come back. Now, for the last few weeks as a church, we've been immersed in this study called Thrones, Redefining Royalty. And we've been looking at the life of King David. And last week, we found David really kind of at the peak of his personal power. And we discovered him in an incredibly dark, dark period. Now, before we get into today's message, I think it probably would serve us well as we're about five weeks in on this series to kind of remind ourselves, and if you haven't been here, to kind of set the stage for what's been going on. When we came up with the idea of Thrones as a, as a sermon series, as something to look at, we began with the premise that all of us like the throne. We, we like to, to sit on the throne of our lives. We like to call the shots, determine our destiny, chart our own course, all, all those kind of good things. Now, of course, 
as we grow up and, and we mature and we learn how the game is played, nobody would ever demand a throne. Nobody would say, honey, the house looks great, but I need a statement of my personal power. I just, if we could just get a throne, you know, like that one they had at church, I would like to sit on that throne so the kids and you would always remember who's in charge. We don't do that. But boy, don't we play the game? I mean, we, we, we know how to camouflage our desire for the throne. I, I think, actually, isn't that one of the primary parts that parents are appointed to play in the lives of their kids? To, to tell our kids, to show our kids that sitting on the throne is no way to live their lives, to show them that the world does not, in fact, revolve around their every whim, that they will not, in fact, get a ribbon or a trophy just for showing up in life, or a diploma, or a job, or a paycheck. And so we have to learn these things. We have to teach them to our kids. And so we've got this internal struggle that goes on that we all have to resolve to one degree or another in our lives. And so thrones kind of made sense from that perspective. There's also the reality that when Jesus Christ invites a person or people to follow him, to step into a relationship with him, that in that moment of faith, they are immediately adopted into a royal family. The Bible says that those who are followers of Jesus Christ are a royal priesthood. And so there's a lot going on in that. Now, you and I on a Sunday morning in the friendly confines of a worship service would just affirm and amen the royal priesthood. Yes, you preach that. I like that. Give me some royalty. Awesome. But can we just, let's just be honest for a second. We really would have trouble identifying what that means. What, how do we live out our royalty? How do we live it out and, and be a, an example of a royal priesthood. So we've been looking at the life of King David. David, who was the second king of Israel. He, of course, was the shepherd boy who killed Goliath with a well-placed slingshot stone. He was an incredible musician and poet. He became a military leader and genius about whom folk songs were written because of his military successes. And God had tabbed him already to be his chosen king over his chosen people. And He actually did become king over Israel. As a matter of fact, the Bible says in the Old Testament and the New Testament that David was a man after God's own heart. But last week, last week as we kind of followed this thread through David's life, we found him, as we said, kind of at the peak of power. He had achieved and amassed amazing successes, amazing wealth. He was probably between the ages of about 50 and 55, kind of hit that that middle age window of life. And it was at that exact moment that the Bible, God's word, chose to share with us an amazing, amazing period in David's life. A very dark period where David gave in to temptation. He He was in jeopardy of losing everything that God had given to him, everything that he had built and amassed over a life of faithfulness, all because of his attraction to Bathsheba. The Bible says that Bathsheba was an unusual beauty. She was so unusual that David, who had multiple wives and concubines, not necessarily that that's a good idea, but that was what he'd done. When he saw Bathsheba, 
The Bible says in the original Hebrew that in his royal dignity, he saw Bathsheba and responded by saying, huh? And was so consumed with this obsession, this fascination with her that the obsession turned into lust, which became an adulterous affair that produced a child. And in order to cover up the adultery, David ordered the murder of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, who, interestingly enough, was a soldier in David's army. And there was this horrible, horrible season in David's life. Most scholars agree that from the first time he saw Bathsheba to the time that he was confronted with his sin by the prophet Nathan, about a year had passed. There was 12 months of deceit, 12 months of murder, 12 months of hiding that David went through. But as we've already established, there's nothing like a great comeback. I think the Bible shows us this for a couple of reasons. Number one, to show us that nobody is immune from doing something stupid. Tell your neighbor right now, you ain't immune. We we could all fall like David. I mean, David was a man after God's own heart, and yet you see in 2 Samuel the depths to which he fell. But second of all, I think the Bible shows us how far David fell so that they could show us the grace of God. Because to understand grace, you've got to understand sin. And I think most of us, with the benefit of 3,000 years of hindsight since David walked the earth, we would look at David's life and go, well, man, I don't care what your definition of sin is, but that's it. I mean, there was the dereliction of duty as a king. He should have been off at war. There was, there was lust. There was adultery. There was murder. There was deceit. Hey, on anybody's report card, those things are sin. But, you know, I I mean, I have never killed anybody per se. So, so, I mean, David's sin is different from my sin. But when we get into that argument, when we begin grading sin on a curve, what we're saying is we don't understand what sin is all about. Now, sin is something that I just need you to understand. I don't take a great deal of joy in in preaching about sin. I'm not one of these turn or burn kind of preachers. That's not my bag. But if we're going to understand just how amazing grace really is, then we've got to understand the consequences and the effects of sin and what it really is. Now, the word sin, I think, is important. In the original language, both in the Hebrew of the Old Testament as well as the Greek of the New Testament, the word sin is actually a term from the world of archery. Do we have any bow hunters in the house? How many of you maybe are bow hunters? You like to sit up in a tree stand and smear scents all over you? Or maybe you've competed in the Olympics as an archery person. I don't know. That's fine. But the word sin is a term from archery. So when you when you draw that bow back and you get ready to release the arrow at a target, you're aiming for the bullseye. You hit the bullseye, awesome, great job. You've got meat for the winner or you hit the target, you win the medal, whatever the case might be. But when you release the arrow and you miss the bullseye, that is sin. Now you and I would use the term, we would miss the bullseye, dang it, I gotta hit it. But in the Hebrew and the Greek, they would just go, oh, sin. And that's what it was all about. You see, 
the bullseye that we were created for is holiness. Holiness or moral perfection. We were created for that by a holy, morally perfect God. And because he is holy, he is morally perfect, he requires that of anyone who would live in relationship with himself. And so when we sin, when sin entered the world, Genesis chapter 3, my life, you know, this morning or yesterday, whenever sin enters the picture, there are absolutely consequences to us missing that mark. Sin is ultimately about our heart. You can do the right thing for the wrong reasons and your behavior still is tainted by sin. It's, it's a matter of a motive. And, and our hearts are where sin originates. And, and this is what David is getting at as he shows us how to accomplish the comeback. The comeback is awesome. It's great. But the comeback does not happen quickly or easily. As a matter of fact, a lot of times the comeback can be quite painful because there are consequences to sin. Now, sometimes the consequences are just natural consequences, things that just kind of happen after we sin, after we miss the mark. Natural consequences would be like this. Let's say that, that, let's say that I choose to be lazy and Maybe I choose not to study for a test. I just, I'm not going to do it. Or I choose not to prepare for a meeting. Or I choose not to discipline my kids. If you choose those kind of things, then the natural consequences would be you're not going to do well on the test. You're going to lose the business. Or heaven help you, you're going to have to deal with an entitled, spoiled teenager. Whatever the case might be, those are natural consequences. But there are also spiritual consequences to sin. Spiritual consequences lead with the reality that because God is holy, my sin, your sin, alienates us from God. It it creates a separation. It ruptures the relationship for which we were created. And David experienced all of these things. If you read the life of David after Bathsheba, you see consequence after consequence. The child that was conceived in their adulterous affair actually ended up dying. David's household and his family was marked by incredible strife. There was assault of one son over one of his daughters. Another son murdered the son who assaulted that daughter. There was death and mayhem. His other son, Absalom. Absalom tried to usurp David's throne and tried to throw him over by winning the hearts and minds of the people of Israel. There were incredible natural consequences to David's sin. And yet amidst all of these natural consequences, there is absolutely an incredible story of comeback, of David getting back to where God created him. And if you'll notice, the Bible doesn't say only in the Old Testament that David was a man after God's own heart, but after he messed up with Bathsheba, it was game over. Even a thousand years later in the New Testament, He remains affirmed as a man after God's own heart. And I believe it's because of his response to that sin. You see, what God's showing us is that restoration is absolutely possible. Restoration is absolutely possible. Julie and I had been married for a little less than a year when I blew out my ACL in my left knee. I was playing pickup basketball one Saturday afternoon and got the ball at the top of the key. I faked right, 
came back and then blew by the guy with my customary cat-like quickness going left and got that first right leg right by him. But when I planted my left leg on the very next step, my left knee just kind of buckled and, and gave way. And, and I, it just felt awkward. I had never fallen like that. I'd never had that happen. And sure enough, the MRI revealed that I had had torn the ACL. It wasn't even visible anymore. So I had to have surgery and got the ACL reconstructed. And it was within a matter of days that my surgeon had me show up for physical therapy and rehab. And the first day of rehab for my reconstructed ACL, I kind of walked in and I was doing okay. I could put weight on the leg. I couldn't really cut. My cat-like quickness was still a few months away from coming back. And I, I kind of hobbled in and I said, hi, I'm I'm Mac Richard. I'm here for rehab. It's my first day. I said, great, Mr. Richard, if you'll come on back. And they brought me back into the rehab room. And there was one of those, those therapy tables, you know, that you see in training rooms. And they said, if you'll just get up on here and we'll kind of prop you up, give you some pillows. And, and we're going to elevate your knee and wrap it in hot towels, wet, hot towels for about 15 or 20 minutes. And then we'll have one of the therapists come over to, to begin your therapy. I said, man, that's great. So they handed me a Sports Illustrated. I kind of leaned back and started reading. My, my leg was up and elevated. I was like, man, I love rehab. This is awesome. 15, 20 minutes goes by and the physical therapist comes up. He introduces himself. He looks at my chart and he goes, Mr. Richard. I says, it's Richard. We're going to be close. We're going to be together for a long time. Let's kind of get on the right page. And he said, okay, he goes, I'm, here's what I'm going to do to begin with. I'm going to unwrap your knee, and I'm, I'm going to lay you back, if you would. I'm just going to, just going to put you back on, on the table here. If you'll just lie down, and I'm going to kind of just manipulate it and see how stable it is after surgery. Now, post-op, I, I, I couldn't fully extend the knee. It was still very, very stiff, and so I kind of had it stuck at, at an angle like this. And So I laid back, and my leg's up like that, when all of a sudden, For no reason, with no provocation whatsoever, I never even said anything about his mom or, I, I thought he was a nice guy, I thought we were getting along, when for no reason whatsoever, he put all of his weight down on my leg with no warning. And if it sounds like I'm bitter right now, it's only because I still am. He put all of his weight down and stretched my leg out flat. Well, I, I don't know if you remember the cartoons like when, when Wiley e. Coyote would take an anvil to the head and, and the stars would whirl around. I shot up from my reclined position, literally, literally seeing stars. And I, remember, I looked, I didn't say anything, but I looked at him and my, and my face clearly, clearly communicated, bro, what's up? And he said, I, I know, that's as bad as it's ever going to get. I said, you need to know, that's as bad as it's ever going to get. And he said, here's the deal, I had to do that in order to break up the scar tissue and begin the healing process of restoring your knee and getting it back to as strong as it was before. Physical rehabilitation is a perfect picture of spiritual restoration. When you fall, when I sin, whether it's an event or a season in life, spiritual restoration is the name of the game. That's what God is after. 
And David provides for us a roadmap of how to get there. Psalm chapter 139 is David's path to restoration. Most biblical scholars believe that Psalm 139, David wrote in direct response to the Bathsheba chapter of his life. And in Psalm 139, he shows us the road to restoration. But here's what I want you to know today. The road to restoration runs through repentance. The road to restoration runs through repentance. Now, repentance is a great church word. That just sounds like a good church word, doesn't it? But it's actually a military term. The word repent means to do an about face. So if you're running away from God, if you're running toward the things of this world and away from what God has laid out biblically, and the Holy Spirit of God in an act of grace brings that to mind and you're convicted of that sin and you know in your heart that it's not right and you want to stop it, you want to begin the road to repentance, then it, the road to restoration, then it requires an about face. And you choose to quit running that way and begin running back toward the God who created you for a relationship. The road to restoration runs through repentance. And that is what David is getting at in Psalm 139. The first thing that you see at the very beginning is this thing called acknowledgement. That you acknowledge your sin. Some people call it confession and that's a part of it. But I think a lot of times we look at confession and think, you know, confession is really us kind of bringing God up to speed. God, I got to I got to tell you something. I'm I know you but confession is really more about acknowledging, acknowledging who God is and the fact that he already knows everything anyway. There's no sin in my life, no sin in your life that God doesn't already know about. Look at what David writes. He says, oh Lord, you have examined my heart and know everything about me. I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. So so David's saying here, I know you know. And so right now I'm just acknowledging that I know that you know that I messed up, that that I sinned. When the prophet Nathan in 2 Samuel chapter 12 confronted David with his sin with Bathsheba, his sin of murdering Bathsheba's husband and then lying about all of it, David did something very, very important. He didn't rationalize it away. He didn't try to justify it. He also didn't kill Nathan on the spot, which as a king, he would have been well within his legal rights to do. David just said very simply, but very sincerely and very profoundly, I have sinned against the Lord. I've sinned against the Lord. He acknowledged it. He he owned his stuff. I think that's really the the lesson here in the opening verses of Psalm 139. Just own it. As a good friend of mine likes to say, when you mess up, fess up. There's an incredible freedom in acknowledging that you messed up. This is true relationally. If, If you're confronted by your spouse, let's say that 
Let's say that your spouse, I'm going to just pull an example out of thin air, mostly. Let's say that your spouse says, honey, remember we talked about when you said you were going to be home, you're being home. And if you're not, then giving me a call. My tendency, I'm sorry, people's tendencies would be <laughs> to begin explaining. You don't understand. I, I got stuck in a meeting trying to provide for the family. Do you not want to eat? Is that what you're telling me? Do you not want to have food on the table? Just tell me, and that'll be fine. I'll just quit my job. Now, you're laughing the laugh of recognition because we all do that. Psychologists call that deflection. But instead, if when we're confronted, if we would just acknowledge it, just, just go, you know what? You're right. I was wrong. I'm sorry. Here's the beautiful thing about it. At that point, you get to watch the shock and dismay on your spouse's face. Maybe you get to pick them up off the floor. Honey, don't hit your head when you fall. I, I was sincere. I, just acknowledge it. Just, just own it. Acknowledge it. But there's something else going on in the acknowledging, and David gets at that, and that is the desire for connectedness. For connectedness. You see, repentance is ultimately about relationship. It's about restoring the relationship that our sin ruptured. And David kind of hints at that in that first verse. But look at what he says here. He says, God, you saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. How precious are your thoughts about me, oh God. Your thoughts about me cannot be numbered. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of sand. And when I wake up, you are still with me. You see, David, didn't, David knew that even, even in his sin, it ultimately wasn't about the report card. It wasn't about the moral scoreboard of his life. It was about relationship with God. That's, that's what was damaged. That's what was, was interrupted in his sin. And so, yes, he acknowledges it, but he acknowledges it not just so he can tick that off of the list and go, did it? Forgive me. I got to move on. Got to go. But he said, God, this is ultimately about relationship. You knew me before I ever drew a breath. Now, that's powerful theology. That, that's deep water right there. To know that every single one of us, every single child who is born is known and identified by God Almighty before conception. And they are known and identified for the purpose of relationship with the God who made them. So this is the ultimate goal of repentance, of restoration, is that, is that connectedness. But David moves on and he says, not only is it about my relationship with God and connectedness, but it's also about discernment. It's about discernment specifically in who I surround myself with. 
in the people that I'm going to invest in and allow to invest into my life. That's your call. That's, that's my call, is that discernment factor. And, you know, it's interesting, when, when our kids are young, you know, kindergarten, first grade, boy, we can see those troublemakers. But then in high school, we're kind of like, ooh, I don't know, peer pressure, I'm worried about them, with good reason. But you know what I've noticed? You never outgrow peer pressure. Parents have peer pressure. We all do. We all want to be liked. We all want to fit in. We all want to keep up. But you see, David prays a very specific prayer about discernment because here's the thing that David understood. Post Bathsheba, David knew that we are the sum total of the five closest people in our lives. Who you're going to be the race you're going to run, the pace you're going to keep will be determined by the five closest people in your life. Now, some of you are under the age of, say, 20 or 25 or maybe even 18, and you're kind of, you listen to that, and you're like, yeah, maybe. But those of you who are 25, 30, 35, 40, 50, 60, you know I'm telling the truth. It's just a fact. So our discernment about who we're going to be around really matters. Look at what David said. He said, oh God, if only you would destroy the wicked. Get out of my life, you murderers. They blaspheme you, God. Your enemies misuse your name, oh Lord. Shouldn't I hate those who hate you? Shouldn't I despise those who oppose you? Yeah, I I hate them with a total hatred for your enemies are my enemies. Now, that's not just a little feel-good for me to send you on your way this week with. And and some of you are kind of, ooh, I don't know about that. Should I hate people? No, 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 no. When people tell you who they are, believe them. If they mock God, if they mock your faith, pray for them. But don't invest or allow them to invest in your life that's what david's getting at isn't it interesting he says get out of my life you murderers at this point david was one remember he had murdered uriah by the order of the king but david understood that he had to be more discerning about the people he placed in his life, about who he was going to listen to, who he was going to run with. And then he brings it even closer to home. He, He brings it to an even finer point and a narrower focus than just mere discernment. He gets into elimination. Elimination matters. I shared with y'all a few weeks ago that Julie and I did this eating plan, Whole30. No sugar, no chemicals, no preservatives, no taste, no fun. (laughs) And and I teased because it really was, it was awesome. It it changed the way we think about food, the foods that we eat on a regular basis. And now we're actually choosing, by and large, to eat like that. But I remember at the very beginning, on about day eight or nine of this 30-day program, I was 
cranky. I remember. I thought if I see one more piece of kale, there will be kale to pay. I remember thinking this this is just all. You see, I had to eliminate chocolate chip cookies. I got to tell you, I like me some chocolate chip. I do. I can I can walk away from candy. I know Halloween's coming up, and some of you are already planning how to steal your kids' candy. That doesn't bother me. I, I can walk away from candy all day long. But cookies. Mm. But if I was going to do what I needed to do and what Julie and I had agreed to, I had to eliminate them. You know, the New Testament says all things in Christ are permissible, but not all things are profitable. Because of grace, you, there are a lot of things you can do, but what's really profitable? That's what David's getting at here in Psalm 139. He says, search me, O God. Search me, know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Check this out. This is a strong prayer now. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. David is saying here, God, show me what to eliminate. Get get everything out of my life that would take me away from the life you created me for. Help me to live the life that is truly life. It takes elimination. That there are certain things you're just not going to do. If you're going to walk the road to restoration known as repentance to actually change direction and go 180 degrees the other direction. You see, here's what what happens a lot of times. We're we're walking away from God. We know it. We need to get back on the path. I I know. I I need to do that. You're right. And so we start. I'm going to do an about face. Here we go. Whoa. That was a big change. Let me do this. I'm still better than I was. I'm still, I'm, I'm going this way. I was, I was going a hundred, I was going the exact wrong way. Now I'm going just mostly the right way. That's not repentance. Repentance is 180 degrees chasing God with everything you've got. Search me and find any offensive way within me. Anything. And that is the road to restoration. Holy Spirit, show me anything in my life. Flush it out. And then fill me with your presence, with your power, with your life, with your grace, with your truth. This is the road to restoration. This is why God included the story of David and Bathsheba in the Bible. Because he knew that he would also 
provide the path to restoration. You see, Jesus Christ died on the cross. He took the ultimate consequence for my sin, for your sin. And then he did what we couldn't have done for ourselves. He rose from the dead. David's story is awesome, but it's just foreshadowing. It's just a a shadow of what was to come in Jesus. And when Jesus rose from the dead, he rose with a promise of a new life of restoration to the life that God created us to live for anyone who would receive it. I want to ask you to bow your heads for just a brief moment. And in this moment, if you're here today and you have never stepped into that relationship with Christ, that restoration, then we want to give you the opportunity to do that right now to personally and definitively choose to follow Christ, to accept his invitation to a relationship. Just right where you're sitting, I want to invite you just to pray a prayer of beginning, beginning that relationship, beginning that restoration. Just silently talk to Jesus and say, Jesus, I need you. I need you. I need restoration. I need forgiveness. And so in this moment, by your grace, because of who you are, I repent. I'm doing an about face with my life. And I will follow you from this moment forward with everything I have. Jesus, I confess, I acknowledge my sin. You know it all anyway. But in this moment, I acknowledge that. And I claim your forgiveness. Your redemption. Your restoration. to live in that every day from this moment forward. And I pray this prayer, Jesus, in your name. I want to just ask you to remain with your heads bowed for another moment because this is sacred ground that we're on right now. When God moves in somebody's life, that's a big deal. And if you just prayed to step into that relationship with Christ, this is the greatest moment of your life. It's a moment that we as a church exist for. We live for those kind of moments. And so I want to just talk to you briefly and tell you, if you just stepped into that relationship personally and definitively, I want to ask you to mark this moment. And before you leave today, service is going to be over in just a couple of minutes, but before you leave, I want to ask you to take the program that you got when you came in, and when you open it up, you'll see in there, there's a thing that we call the connect card. That's what the church is. It's about connecting. 
connecting with God, connecting with each other. And so I want to ask you who just prayed that prayer, if you would fill that card out, tear it off with the perforation, and indicate there on the card, I'm committing my life to Christ today. And then before you leave, if you would just take a brief, brief moment and make a personal connection. Hand that card to an usher, somebody who's got the blue LHC shirt on. Or you can stop at the little canopy out underneath the front porch out there that says LHC on it. But just make a moment. Make the time to create that personal connection. It's just briefly. But it changes everything. Very briefly, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, if if that was your prayer today and you meant it for the first time, I want to ask you if you would make sure that you know this is real. This this happened. And just just briefly, but unmistakably, if you would just raise your hand. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. Just raise your hand and hold it up high over your head for just a moment. And know that as a church family, we want to be a family of faith for you. And so we celebrate that in your life. We honor that. And as you put your hands down, our family tradition is we put our hands together and tell you, welcome home. Welcome home.